Welcome to Acute Conversations, the official podcast of APTA Acute Care, where we share engaging conversations about acute care physical therapy so you can connect to your profession. I'm Ashley. And I'm Leo. Today we chat with Carrie Lammers. She is a rehab services manager at the Ohio State University Medical Center and is the current co-chair of the research committee. We discuss the research abstract submission process, how the committee connects people, and how one person can change the trajectory of your entire career. Let's welcome our guest. All right, today we welcome Carrie Lammers, and thanks for joining us today. So, first thing I want to ask Carrie, you know that you're in acute care, but why acute care compared to all the other different facets of physical therapy versus sports, ortho, geriatrics, and all these other, why acute care? Well, I think like, honestly, most clinicians in acute care, I started off on a sports ortho track. I think we all <laughs> go to PT school, assuming that we're going to save the world one sprained ankle at a time. But honestly, I had been very committed to sports and ortho. I have a sports background from college. I was an athlete. So when I got to PT school, it just seemed like the logical choice. I'd been Olympic lifting since seventh grade. You know, I was just sort of meant for that track. And I went to the University of Florida for PT school, and I am very fortunate that I just, by random circumstance, got paired on my acute rotation. I volunteered to do it first because I just wanted it out of the way so I could go learn all the sports things possible. Uh, And I just had a CI. Ashley, I hope you're listening. Um, She just basically said, like, here, like, I get it. Sports are cool, but like, can you just give this a chance? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, sprained ankles are awesome, but at the same time, like you're going to change somebody's life by helping them here in the hospital. So can you please Mm -hmm. just like give it a chance? And I, the rest is history. She was someone who used evidence at every turn. She had been to several conferences. She cited work from Jen Zaney, who was at Hopkins at the time in acute care, as well as Christina Permi out in Texas. You know, she had just... She was constantly reviewing the evidence. She had changed clinical practice at this tiny community hospital to have, you know, femoral lines mobilized in the ICU of a bed of five, I think it was five beds in their cardiac ICU. I mean, it was, it was super (laughs) tiny, but she was changing the world and it just, you know, both through, she opened my eyes to quality improvement and the impact that you could have on a system. She was trying to change the status quo for DVT bed rest protocols. You know, she just really opened my eyes that we could have a much bigger impact on a much larger group of people. But she also really set the tone for me to learn and sort of never accept, like, if you think something could be better, you should just try, like from Mm -hmm. a very positive way, not from a frustrated place, but from a, why can't we change it? Uh, so that's really when I got the bug for a lot of that stuff. And I had been simultaneously working. I went to school at Florida with my at then professor, Barb Smith, who is my co-chair currently, mm-hmm. uh, who got me really involved in the research section sort of simultaneously. I ended up applying to the student scholarship at the Johns Hopkins Clinical Conference for ICU critical care. At the time, it was its first year. And that basically one thing led to another, had a conversation with Jen Zaney, who to this day, I give credit for why I ended up at Hopkins. And, you know, she said, why don't you apply? And, you know, I moved up to Baltimore. So I couldn't believe that they would hire new grads, much less me. So I just feel really fortunate that that's sort of where my career went. But I wanted to go where the ICU was. Mm-hmm. And I saw that they were doing things like playing the Wii in the ICU. You know, they were walking patients on machines that had caused bed rest everywhere that I had seen. And I just really thought, you know, they are the ones changing the game. 
and certainly going to be the ones to change the system. So I, I just really felt like that's where I needed to be too. I think that is such a cool story. A couple things. Number one, shout out to Barb Smith, who could not be with us (laughs) today. Call me early. Barb, we're thinking about you. We're representing. Um, Mm -hmm. But number two, I was never one of those people who wanted to go into acute care. I'm sorry. I was one of those people who did not want to go into sports. I should say that. I never wanted to go into sports. But Mm -hmm. I love, love, love stories of like how one person like a CI can influence your whole Mm -hmm. journey. And I have to confess, when I was a CI in acute care, it was always my mission to convert people like to acute care. (laughs) Always. I tried it too, because I was like, hey, I had this. And they were like, yeah, no, thank you. I'm going to sports. And I was like, duh, darn it. But I don't think I converted anybody, actually. (laughs) Was that one of your early rotations where you like, I just want to get this done. I want to get it over with so I can do all sports. And I have so many. Yes. Yes. And actually, ironically, I guess I graduated. I can't take my back my degree now. But at Florida, leading up to your first internship, you spend every other week in the clinic at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And you have to do either wound care or acute care. And I like traded away all of my wound care visits. I was the person who had to put like stuff under my nose so I wouldn't pass out from the smells. Like I was so (laughs) far from an acute care PT. And uh, yeah, I traded a bunch of my days away for observations so that I wouldn't have to go do wounds and burns and all those things. But yeah, I mean, Ashley, she knows. I've I've told her a million times. She she genuinely changed my whole future. That's Um, really awesome. Just through trying to make things better. And in the hospital, you just, there's a lot more proximity to systems that need support and the perspective of PT is just so unique in that setting. We truly bring sort of a a perspective and education that just doesn't exist in that exact combination in the rest of the multidisciplinary team. So it's cool well, to be able to provide value in that way. I want to meet your CI. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Sounds like a really awesome person. But today we have you here as representative of the research committee. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to hear, tell me about like your role and Barb's role and how you all work together and what's the overall just goal and mission of this committee. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the research committee itself has a pretty wide scope. We've been growing in numbers over the past decade. It was when I joined the committee about a decade ago. I started off as a peer reviewer. So we have sort of two schools of thought and things that we're responsible for. One is CSM, poster and platform submission. And, that, and then there's like everything else. So sort of through the evolution of things, the growth of the section, the growth of submissions, the quantity of submissions, the quality of submissions, I've really become sort of the owner of just the CSM process, which in of itself is probably 60 to 80 hours of volunteer time a year. Um, But Barb, bless her soul, does a lot of the other stuff. So we also do seed grants. There's five opportunities for those where we sort of give small little grants to anyone who is trying to just sort of get a project up off the ground, you apply just like a typical grant. We encourage that you come back and share that or disseminate that through their CSM, Bridge the Gap, something like that. But there's a lot of other initiatives and really where we're focusing our time and have focused our time is trying to connect people. That's where we feel the strongest. We have been trying for years. Technology finally caught up with us. So we have Basecamp, which is how we're trying to connect Newer, newer clinicians, researchers, budding cl- clinicians or researchers with experienced people. And our goal is to try to connect that so that even if you don't have that support within your institution, you can find someone through the APTA who can help you specifically through our committee, ideally. So a lot of things. So we've done things in the past, like really highlighting certain like common themes. We had an initiative in 2018 where we had four or five submissions on the same topic for posters. And we said, well, why don't we connect them 
and try to have them do an educational session for the following year. Um, as luck would have it, because it's all blinded, we actually coincidentally ended up working with three board certified clinicians with five specialties between them. So do the math on that. So, and it was a vestibular topic. So I was actually coincidentally the mentor that year, but you know, they did the work. They connected from all around the country. They combined their research, talking about traumatic injuries with BPPV, and they put together an educational presentation, sort of learning for me how to support and present at CSM, but also how to connect, how to bring meaning to their research, how to share their story. Then COVID hit. So a few of those initiatives <laughs> sort of went by the wayside, like many things. But we're really getting it back together. So we do like a research connections event every year at CSM. We have representation each year at Bridge the Gap as well. And then where we're headed is actually sort of a combination of all of these things where we can have people connect either through a webinar or something like off cycle from the major conferences where we just start talking about like, what does it take to write an abstract? What does it take to ask the right questions? How do you know from the minute you have an idea that it's QI versus research versus you need to talk to your institution's IRB? So really where we're focusing, regardless of if it's CSM or grants or anything like that, we're just trying to get people to believe in themselves that they can do this. You know, like what is that gateway? What is that moment of mentorship where you believe I can do this too? What um, I love about what you're talking about is I think it would have been so easy just to read those five submissions and been like, oh, we'll just pick one. We're not going to have right. all these. But like you took the extra step and the extra work to actually connect these people. And it probably made for a much better presentation. And I've just been like, since I met you and Barb at CSM, I've been so impressed at all the mm-hmm. things you all are doing because you really, you can tell you really have a strong passion for wanting people to be able to do this. So let's yeah. say, let's say somebody out in the listening crowd is thinking, I might want to submit something for CSM, but mm-hmm. I'm not really sure where to start. Can you give them some tips? Like what kind of things are you looking for? Can they mm-hmm. actually reach out to you and ask questions? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, our, our emails are on the website. We de- we do respond. I promise. There are personal emails, whether you're just in the idea concept of like, hey, I'm not sure if I want to, I have this idea. I'm not sure if I should go through like women's health or through acute care. I will say not just Barb and I, but all program chairs tend to respond quickly Mm -hmm. and say like, hey, this is what I think would appeal to our audience. If this is the spin you're willing to take, then by all means, versus like, hey, I think this is a really cool idea, but have you talked to the chair of neuro? You know, just, you know, just sort of trying to get them connected with the right people. So I think starting there's always a good start, a good spot. So email us, say, hey, I have this idea versus I'm all the way through this project. I'm trying to figure out if I have enough to submit. Some people will email us and say they've done this huge project. They're trying to figure out if they have enough data to present. And we sort of give just our opinion on whether or not the reviewers will find that to be sufficient or not. But honestly, if they have the idea, just ask the question, like, what does it take? There's a lot of information and examples on the website, but I'm also happy to send back examples that we've had from the past that people have given permission to share. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then honestly, it's funny you ask about the reviewers. So we have, when I started a decade ago, we, I think we had 12 peer reviewers, maybe it was 20. Barb would correct me here. There's not that many. And now we have over 60 that are on my list and they cycle in and out. So we used to have only a couple of people assigned per abstract. Now I tend to have five or six to make sure we really have group consensus. And they look for not just, so we used to look really a lot at like the grammar, believe it or not, tends to Mm -hmm. be 
the hardest thing to get past because you just want people to understand what you're saying. But now we've gotten to a place where we're not just looking for good quality of writing, we're looking for good ideas. And it's not just about what is your idea, what's your research design, it's about what does this bring to the section? That is by far and away um, where my reviewers go these days is I hear you, this is a cool idea, but like, what do we do tomorrow? What do I do differently in my clinical practice this afternoon? And it's that tangibility that I'm really proud of that we've really cultivated over the last few years because acute care has spoken, right? Like yes. COVID changed everything. Right, right. And whether you're in an institution that's criticizing your time, your productivity, what have you, we are so valuable in this setting. And I think those who work in acute care are very proud of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, this the status quo has evolved to not just what are you doing with your clinical practice, but why are you doing that in your clinical practice? Mm -hmm. And we really see that come through with submissions. So Carrie, you had mentioned something earlier about people doing research, even in small community hospitals and how much of an impact they can create, especially through research. I know for me personally, it's sometimes kind of daunting because you're thinking, how do I create this large randomized double-blinded controlled trial? But you mentioned something earlier too about QI, so quality mm -hmm. improvement for those right. who know with QI. So could you explain like, how does that work out? How would like a quality improvement project be something that might be attainable rather than going straight to a large mm -hmm. uh, production, right? Or some type of right. research. Especially for clinicians who might be in the system and new to this. Yes. Right, right. No, so I mean, I can use my example. So when I started off as a clinician and I joined Ashley at that medical center, she was frustrated pretty openly with, at the small community med center, they didn't have people to read radiology or imaging over the weekend. They outsourced it or it was like basically ranked and then you'd get the official report later. So if you're someone who went for, and this is a long time ago. So if you're someone who was put on bed rest pending a DVT evaluation, you needed the Doppler. If this happened on a Thursday, they didn't get to reading your, your information on Friday, you sat until Monday. Wow. So as a clinician, that sort of hurts your soul, right? Because now you have somebody <laughs> sitting for four days who probably should and could be up moving around. So Ashley was looking at it really from an angle of, you know, what evidence do we have to evaluate these patients? And that led to questions related to the Wells clinical prediction rule. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she was showing with data, these physicians, the radiology department, you know, her own department, like, hey, these patients don't really need to sit here. If their clinical findings, like, yes, I hear you're ruling it out, but their clinical findings don't necessarily support that they should just be on bed rest. So here's seven articles on why bed rest is bad. Here's, you know, additional clinical evidence that would support allowing these people to at least mobilize in the, in the interim, depending on what meds they're on, you know, all those different things. And it did, it led to a practice change. I adopted that same project sort of in larger scale once I started there and I submitted it for CSM. I had support from Florida to pursue that. And I actually did get the top poster that year, ironically. And then I decided, you know, this is something everybody could do. So it's not necessarily always, you know, a double-blinded research study. Sometimes it's just applying logic to what your patients need the most. So if your patients, if you identify something like that, where, you know, we have so much evidence that says these patients could be moving if you just look at it through a different lens. Mm -hmm. And then think about what language do those clinicians, physicians, radiologists need to hear to allow a change in the status quo. 
And a lot of that tends to live under the umbrella of the institutional IRB protocol as QI, as opposed to a formal research study. We were not setting out to validate the clinical prediction rule in that population. We were just trying to change this bed rest phenomenon. So, you know, can we either get people working on the weekend or can we, you know, liberate these patients while we wait if there's no other evidence or a more likely diagnosis? Yeah, so that's a great idea. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. That's a great example too, I think. And it's basically like if you're a clinician and you see something and you right. want to change it, it could maybe right. turn it into a QI project and there's research, right? right? So, and I think that's a great example. I want to talk about, you also mentioned in the research committee that you all do seed grants. Mm-hmm. And I would say for somebody that maybe is interested in learning more about that, what is that process like? And I think a lot of people get caught up by budgets. Like, mm-hmm. how do I know how much money to ask for? What 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 do I make for my line items? Like, what kind of money can I ask for? So can you touch on that process just a little bit for somebody who might be thinking, I want to apply for one of these grants? Yeah, so I think, so first of all, Barb is the boss of the grants. So <laughs> I encourage anyone, she has more experience in grants and writing. She is someone I aspire to be in that realm. So I will always, first and foremost, defer to Barb. So first step would just email her right? Ask about what is the criteria. They do have specific information that they're looking for. They usually try to keep it less than two pages. So it's not like a ton of writing and they just want to know what you're going to use the time or the money for. And one of the more common things that I think people don't always think about is time. So when we think about like productivity, protected time to do certain things in hospital initiatives, that money can literally just pay for, you know, the average median hourly rate of your staff to do the analysis or go do the test or, you know, some of those things. But it can also fund things like materials, supplies, testing kits, you know, all those different types of things. There's a huge range. And what the grant reviewers really look for is does the ask meet the need in terms of and can the grant that we have really supplement and actually get that up and running. So many of the more recent submissions I know do look much more at protected time more than any other sort of variable. But I think we could all agree that time and money are important in the hospital. So having money to pay for your time is undoubtedly a way to get started. And do you know offhand how much the grants are like how much is awarded typically? Do you know? 5,000 typically of late. I think the number of grants that we provide each year is dependent on the board and budgeting and things like that, but they are 5,000 as of right now. Gotcha. That's, I mean, that's, that's a great opportunity that you all offer. And now an announcement from APTA Acute Care's nominating committee. Hello, my name is Kate Kugler. I am the current nominating committee chair. I am reaching out because I want to share the current positions that we are recruiting for, for involvement within APTA acute care leadership. This year, we are looking to slate candidates for the president, for the bylaws chair, for a delegate, and for a member of the nominating committee. I would be happy to talk with you about any of these positions and a little bit more about what their responsibilities and roles typically look like. This is also the first year that we're looking for individuals interested in SIG leadership in total joint and residency and fellowship. So we are looking for individuals to be slated in the chair, vice chair, and secretary positions for each of those SIGs. 
If you have an interest in running for one of these positions, there will be a link for the nomination form. Or if you think of a colleague that also might be a great fit for one of those positions, there is a nomination form that will be linked in the show notes for the episode. Thanks. Okay, I want to ask you too, with all your experience in both research and also as a clinician from all the way when you're back as a student, how have you seen the profession change? Because I feel a lot of those changes have been enacted because of the research that we're mm-hmm. putting out. And as the research gets better and better, we're seeing more and more great changes, whether it's the technology, whether it's practice. Can you speak on that a little bit? You know, I, this might sound cheesy, but I think it's really resulted in just awareness of what mm-hmm. we can do. Mm-hmm. So for example, so I started my whole official re- research career in acute vestibular. I happened to have done a vestibular rotation as a student. And then I happened to be covering general medicine. And I saw, I, it was like 30 patients in a year where these patients had clear presentation of like BPPV or an an acute hypofunction or something that they did not need to be in the hospital for. And I, you know, I just kept saying like, man, they really don't need to be here. Mm -hmm. So I went and I talked to my boss and I said, Hey, I think I have an idea where we can just bring awareness for the fact that PT can address this without, you know, costing these patients all this crazy amount of money. Meanwhile, there's a study published in the Journal of Acute Care where they showed that a three-day hospital stay in acute to the tune of $36,000 could have been avoided if they had just consulted PT out of the gate to address BPPV, right? So what I think has happened is we've really put ourselves at the table. So we're not just using research to say, oh, this intervention is the best intervention out of all the interventions and PT is so great. Woohoo! What we are doing is we're saying that we have a skill set that can address a major systematic problem to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars to provide better access and better care to these patients. And all we're asking for in return is acknowledgement. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the next time you have a patient present this way, give me a call. Let's see if we can, you know, help because hospitals care a lot about length of stay, you know, admission rates and readmission rates, you know, all those different kinds of things. So if you can speak their language, and provide yourself as a tool, you get a lot of people listening. And I think that's really where a lot of the submissions for CSM are going. And that's sort of the value I was trying to speak to earlier is we're no longer talking about, you know, we introduced, you know, nerve blocks on post-op day zero, and therefore patients started moving earlier and walking farther. We're saying we introduce nerve blocks, we walk them farther and we reduce length of stay. Mm-hmm. If you do that mm-hmm. for 300 patients in a six month time frame, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in healthcare um, value. So, you know, the more we can put ourselves and our qualifications front and center, I think that's really where the value of PT in the hospital is going. That's amazing. I want to go back to this idea of connections you brought up earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you know, let's say there's somebody who's a little more greener or junior at research and they have this idea, but they need maybe support or a mentor or just collaboration. Is the research committee a place where they can get that collaboration or what is offered in terms of connection specifically? So that's something we are actively trying to create. So at any point in time, whether we have an official program for it or not, anyone is 
please reach out to us, talk to us, because even if we don't necessarily have someone on the committee, we know a lot of people, right? So we know a lot of people within the APTA. We have a program we're starting this year. We're optimistic about CSM in the future. We're creating like a shark tank where people can come, share their ideas, have a pitch. But what we've asked of the sharks in return, if we're able to pursue this in the next couple of years, is that the sharks aren't just there for show or a gimmick at the conference. We're hope we ask them to then in turn pick pick these people and provide mentorship. So we're talking eight to ten hours of participation from the sharks themselves. Yeah, that so is like not... the coolest idea. <laughs> I have to confess, I watch Shark Tank and I love it, and it's mm -hmm. such a great show. I love this. But the value is not just you know. But I think the cool thing about that as a metaphor is when you watch it you are equally as excited to hear about the idea somebody came up with yes. the story that they have, that they sort of tell how they got where they are, the mm -hmm. struggles that they've endured. And you're like, man, they just really love what they're and how doing. Committed and prepared right. they are versus right. just like, Oh, I just had this kind of fluff idea, but like haven't right. done anything with it. Yeah. But the value for the person on the show, as embarrassing as it may be, is that they're hearing real feedback on right. business models or ideas or where could we have gone? Where did we go wrong? Where could we improve? You know, and whether their ideas get selected or not, the audience is learning, they're learning, and the mentors are able to share their wisdom. So we're really hoping to sort of capture that. That's more of a coming soon idea, yeah. but it's just one of the many things that we are trying <laughs> so hard to just connect people around the country and get people talking and sharing so that we can advance the profession as a whole. That's exciting. I want to do it just so I can be a part of it, just to <laughs> say I did it. <laughs> I wonder who gets to play Mark Cuban out of all the people on your, on your network. Who's the, who's the Mark Cuban character? In that scene? We, can't bring, we can't bring in the sports guy. Come on. <laughs> no, okay, okay. You're, you're true. Oh, you're right. for I'm many kidding. reasons. More I'm than kidding. one. <laughs> Full circle. Oh, that's funny. No, so hopefully more to come on that later. We're waiting to hear back from the CSM committee, all that stuff. So, yeah. Gary, do you have any good stories about, like you said, like like acknowledging that PTs, where the researchers at, at, that PTs can address X, Y, and Z, right? For example, I still specifically remember telling new residents that were trying to do some vestibular assessment, and it was it was bad. I won't tell them. I won't say exactly where they came from, what hospital, but I was like, I was just walking past a room, and they've got their notes trying to figure out how to do. All these different types of <laughs> neurological exams, right? For for vestibular. Oh, yeah. I walk by and I'm just like, well, what's going on here? This is patient even on console. Oh, we're trying to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, you know, us as physical therapists, we we do this like regularly. We do it well. And they their eyes just totally opened up. They had no idea. So you're completely right with just us as having a seat at the table and address it. But do you have any really or actually you too as well? Any good stories where you were able to share with some type of other medical practitioner that hey. We do this and we, and we do it well. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I like love the tag along. <laughs> oh my God. No, I was going to say, I just love the tag along. Mm -hmm. Like anytime there's a skeptic in the midst and I'm just like, oh, just come along. Let's, let's mm. go do it together. Uh, it's no secret that my history is largely in cardiac medicine and surgery. So ironically, I found a lot of it because of the position people are in with their sternal precautions when they lay down is coincidentally the sideline test. So I was fortunate that I had peers who would be like, hey, there's a dizzy one. Go check them out. But I love bringing like the nurse practitioners in, having, oh, can you just hold their head here? Oh, that's so great. Just because then they they witness it. And I, I mean, I'm sure Ashley has similar story. It's just, it's, there's no better proof 
than for them to be in the room and you sit the patient up after the maneuver and they're like, oh, I feel better. Mm -hmm. See, it's not voodoo. It works. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's a lot of stories, some scary stories, but yeah, just a lot of I was a mentor for the cardiopalm residency, acute care portion of it at Duke for many years. And we did a lot of things like that. Like, you know, we would collaborate and the residents would have ideas and I'd be like, let's do it. So one of my favorite things that one of the residents and I started was interdisciplinary rounding, which was, this was years Mm. ago, but it was fantastic because PTs were not part of rounding in our hospital at the time in this particular ICU. And just to put them in the rounding with the doctors and the speech therapists and the OTs and the chaplains and everybody else who was there, it, it opened their eyes so much to be like, that would give us a little spiel about the patient. And then we would say, well, are, you know, are they sedated or not? Like, can they follow commands? And they, and then we'd say, well, put us an order in. And they were like, well, wait, but they have a femoral A-line. We can't put, and we're not like, no, yes, you can. We can see those patients. So <laughs> it like probably doubled or tripled our consults. And the doctors yeah. became more and more aware and more educated mm-hmm. of what we can actually provide. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and the thing about acute vestibular is like, there's all these statistics about like the frequency in which you're supposed to see certain things and certain diagnoses. And I, like my personal caseload, like just blew all of that up. I mean, I've seen people go to the hospital because they feel like they're falling off the edge of the earth. Right. Yeah. Um, So you get to see a lot of things that, you know, it's just wild, like the red flags you pick up on. And I had a patient once who she had had cardiac surgery. She was young, you know, sort of congenital heart defect, sort of fixed later in life situation. And, you know, I'm just sort of, you know, going through my questions, you know, have you had any trouble swallowing? You know, you always want to screen for the red flags. And she was like, actually, yeah, a lot of the time I feel dizzy. I have some trouble swallowing. And I was like, oh, okay. So then you go down this road and it turns out she had had some very early onset symptoms of a neurodegenerative disease. And I got an email from her months later, but sort of thanking me for acknowledging and finding and starting a conversation because they had not picked up on it. But her family, when I started asking questions, they were like, oh no, actually she does say sometimes she has double vision. Is that related to this? Do we need to be worried about that? And it turns out we were able to get her hooked up with a very specific clinic we have for that at Hopkins. But, you know, it's just, it's wild. Like acute care, I say it all the time, is the wild west. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you just, you never know what you're going to get. And that's why I love it is I love teaching in acute care because you get to have that moment, especially for those dedicated sports students where like, Oh, they said we would never see this. And I'm like, right. But it's right in front of you. Right. Right. What are you going to (laughs) do? So (laughs) I just think it's cool. In true Leo dad joke fashion. Speaking of the wild West, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you might have something to share about weights and hammers or something related. Oh Yeah. Please, please tell us a fun thing about you. Well, once upon a time, many moons ago, I was a 20-pound weight and hammer thrower at a Division I university. I was very fortunate to throw right alongside an All-American. We Back in the day, we were the only school to have two people in the top 25 individually. But the funny thing about this, actually, and I hope Caitlin is listening to this. So I recently hired someone who was legitimately like almost Olympian level in the same event or a different event, but same, same track and field background. And it came up in her interview. So I have this entire panel of people and they all know that I was, it had recently come out during a fun fact interview or meeting that I had 
a history in this. So it comes up in the interview, everybody's doing the thing. And I was like, we, we decided to hire her. She joins our team. And then turns out since I graduated, there's like Facebook for track and field. Mm -hmm. And I'm just old enough that only like part of my season shows up on this thing. And they were, I was in the break room one day and they were like, oh, let's look everybody up. And I was like, oh God, I am so, oh God. Cause meanwhile, Caitlin's legitimate. So lucky for me, I beat her by two inches oh. <laughs> so I can still be her boss, <laughs> but that's it's right. something that's so funny. Oh my once upon a time. Yeah. Once upon a time. Yeah. Lots of weightlifting, things like that. But um, I still that dream. You know, the interview question reminds me, I had an old manager who used to ask at the end of every interview, if you could pick any profession to do other than PT, what would you choose? And it, I think she probably got the most astounding responses, which I think is a really cool question to ask people just to get to know a little bit more about them. You know, mm -hmm. we okay. actually do that on most of our team meetings when we have new staff, especially, which it's become like one of our favorite things to ask. So I'm going to ask you two, our favorite oh, ooh, question ooh. that's become the go-to. You get a you question. With our team. This is a turn of events. I don't know yes. if I like it. <laughs> I was going to ask you, it's my favorite thing. If you could be, if you could live in any TV show, what would it be? Oh, you're hitting us with a rapid response. Oh, yikes. Oh, this is a lot about a person. I'm not going to lie. Cause it's, it's a pretty cool question. And I think we've decided we're going to start asking it in our in our interviews. If I could live in any TV show, I'm trying to think of a TV show that I watch. Mm. <laughs> you know, I got one. I like Sesame Street because of my kids. Oh. That'd, be fun. That'd be fun. I get to hang out with Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird. And yeah, so I think and, like I, and I learn yeah. and I get a chance That's to learn. Right? Oh, I've got I have two that comes to mind. Yeah. Well, one of my all time favorite shows, and this is when I was younger and actually was filmed in North Carolina where I'm from, but Dawson's Creek, I had a Ooh. probably slight unhealthy yes. obsession with Katie Holmes. I thought she was amazing. <laughs> yes. So I would love to just live in Dawson's Creek by the Creek and like, you know, it was just so fun. But the other one, because I love to travel and don't get to do it enough is Amazing Race. Mm. That would be just a really fun show to just go all over the world and experience things. Not so much the race aspect, but I would like the free travel. Mm -hmm. That's so mm -hmm. funny. Oh my God. Mine was Shits Creek in the moment. I, don't think <laughs> I just think it's the, I just, I love it for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. But one of my clinicians one time responded 2020 and we all just like, what? Why? What type of personality that they have? Oh gosh. So funny. Leo, I no, think we need to spin this around. Happy. Yeah. Yes. It's our turn. Yes. Our turn. It's rapid response time. Yes. <laughs> Come easy on me. How much time do we have? A minute and a Let's half? Let's do a minute and a half. Yep. I'm getting my timer ready so you can start whenever. All right. And let's get started. All right, Carrie, choose rock, paper, or scissors. Rock. All right. Next question. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Ooh, night owl. The mornings and I do not get along. Me, me neither. <laughs> if you could name your car, what name would it have? Currently, I drive a minivan because I'm a mom, but I had a Cobalt <laughs> once that I named Colby. Colby, there we go. Awesome. Coffee or tea or something Coffee. different? Coffee. Via IV, preferably. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody would play you, somebody famous would play you in the Carrie Lammers biopic movie, which actress would play you? <sighs> I don't know. I would hope Moira from Schitt's Creek. That's so far off, but I just think it would be an honor. Cool. Awesome. Best book you've read lately? 
Ooh, I just finished Verity by Colleen Hoover. <gasps> I've read it so good. I have not read any of her other stuff, but I loved it. That one's very different from her other stuff, but I'm going on a tangent. Go ahead, Leo. It's really good. <laughs> if you went to PT, what profession would you be in? What would you be doing? So I have, I really think I should have been an Amazon influencer for baby things. <laughs> I have a whole list I share with all my friends when they're ready. I've read every review. I'm just like an old school 2D Amazon reviewer. Cool. That's fantastic. All right. That is our time. So we have to ask our last one. You mm -hmm. know, you work in acute care when fill in the blank. Oh gosh. Ooh, I feel like if you have the poo story, everybody's got a poo story. <laughs> got a poo story. Uh, but you know, I think honestly, I, when we had our newborn baby, I literally felt like I could change any diaper. Cause I realized that I'd been doing this for years on, mm -hmm. on adults. And it was all the same, all the same strategies. My husband struggled and I was like, no, you just move them like this. And then you do the thing. And I realized that I could put on a diaper on literally any moving tiny infant or large human <laughs> in the world. That's fantastic. For years. <laughs> the skills you pick up from a cute, I know applicable I know. outside the hospital. <laughs> right. right. Well, Carrie, if our listeners mm -hmm. want to find you, where can they find you? Do you have any social media accounts? Just an email? Yes. I have a Twitter. And I have LinkedIn, but mostly the easiest way that people find me is the APTA submission website. My email's right there. Whatever email I'm currently actively using is always posted there. I do make sure that it's up to date so that I am getting the information. Um, but honestly, most of the people, I just eventually hand out my, my cell number. So, if, you know, if we go back and forth on too many emails, I'm like, just call me. So whatever you need, we're, we're happy to help. Awesome. Carrie, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for being a fantastic guest. Thank you for having me. You guys are wonderful. Thank you for sharing what we're trying to do with the rest of the section. I think it's really awesome. No, thank you. We're trying. We're out there doing, fighting the good fight, right? We would like to thank Carrie for joining us today. Acute Conversations is the official podcast of APTA Acute Care. It is hosted by Leo Orgulis and Ashley Poole. Executive produced by Katie Brito and Edward Mathis. Music by Alexia Action from Pixabay. Sound effects also from Pixabay. For more information about APTA Care, please go to our newly updated website, aptaacutecare.org. And be sure to check out our show notes for links and resources from the Academy. If you found value from our podcast, please be sure to subscribe, follow, and share with your friends and colleagues. Join us in two weeks for a conversation with Jim Smith about the upcoming House of Delegates. Thank you for listening, and may your shoes and scrubs stay clean today. Well, I don't know. We need to go back probably and redo the whole thing. Oh, God. <laughs> I have clinicians who listen.